Welcome to the 22nd episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful facts-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. This week, the news was dominated by question about President Trump and his battle with the coronavirus. There seems to be a cloud of uncertainty about his health status. What do we know? What drugs has he been given and why? Should the fact that he was given them under compassionate use be a cause for alarm? And can you explain that a bit? Uh, What can we expect in terms of outcome and how long will he be battling the virus? Jeremy, as you know, the president, first lady, and a dozen others connected with President Trump have tested positive. At least so far, Vice President Pence has tested negative, as has former Vice President Biden. The pivotal day for President Trump was last Friday when he was hospitalized. On that day, his oxygen saturation dropped, which indicated that the infection was not just in his nose and throat, but also his lung, which has been confirmed by his doctors since then. The three medications he has been given are reserved for patients with severe illness. The first, a laboratory-manufactured antibody, has not yet received broad FDA approval, and its efficacy is unknown. The second, remdesivir, shortens hospitalization in some studies, but has not been demonstrated to alter mortality. And finally, he was administered dexamethasone, a steroid. Whether any or all of these were given due to his clinical status or his presidency is unclear based on what his doctors have said. However, we can conclude that the steroid would not have been prescribed unless his physicians were very concerned. And as such, we can conclude that he has a moderately severe infection happening. Of interest, the typical disease course for someone who will end up in critical care is a mild infection for six to eight days and then followed by rapid deterioration. As such, if the president is severely ill this early in the infection, that too is very worrisome. But we don't really know all the details because they're not being released. What we do know is that the combination of his age and obesity put him at very high risk. Obesity blunts the body's immune response, making it very difficult for the individual to respond and eliminate the virus. Putting the pieces together, 
His danger is much higher than average. But listeners need to remember that most people still will do well, despite their medical condition, assuming they get the aggressive treatment that we now have available for COVID-19. Robbie, one thing I know listeners would love to hear your thoughts on has to do with the reporting of the virus. Some of the major news outlets seemed frustrated that we were not getting more specific and detailed information about the president's health status in regard to his battle with the virus. I don't fault them for that. I mean, it's the media's job to want to know as much as possible. Uh, at the same time, though, there are healthcare privacy laws, uh, and people have a right to privacy with their health data. Because he's the president, it's a unique circumstance, and there are even national security implications with this information as well. Uh, given that you are one of the top healthcare thought leaders and policy experts in the country, and at the same time a champion of patients' rights, what are your thoughts on how much does the president have a right to privacy versus how much does the public have a right to know? Jeremy, the question you pose about privacy is difficult. In general, the right to to patient privacy is a fundamental right. But the leader of the nation and the individual with the ultimate responsibility for making decisions as commander-in-chief of the military alters that balance. It is why the 25th Amendment was passed in 1965 and ratified in 1967. It is specific to the competency of the president to decide the fate of the nation and the transfer of power when he or she is not competent to continue to lead the country. Specifically in section four of this amendment, it stated that the vice president and a group of other leaders unspecified by the legislation will assess the situation and send their recommendation that a transfer of power is necessary to Congress if they reach that conclusion. As such, this group definitely needs all of the details to ascertain whether this transfer of power is required. In contrast, the American people might like to know, but the necessity to do so seems to me less vital. What they need to know and be confident about is that the key congressional and executive branch leaders are fulfilling their responsibilities under the 25th Amendment to follow the president's course and make these determinations. What's not needed is for something this serious to be a constant source of speculation. But of course, in our current media world, That is exactly what is happening. Robbie, now that we covered the news about the president, uh, what else should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, when it comes to the infection, we've seen a spike across much of the U.S., as we predicted in our last show. Much of that came out of the opening of colleges and universities across the nation. A study from the CDC found that not only is the median age of people with COVID-19 declining, but also the age band 
with the greatest prevalence of disease is 18 to 25 today. As a result of the demographic shift, 20% of all cases now occur in people in their 20s. A piece of data that was very positive is that the United States saw only 10 to 20% of the usual number of early flu cases this summer, a result of greater social distancing and the fact that 50% of Americans are reported now to be wearing masks. This same outcome of a dramatic drop in the flu has been seen in the Southern Hemisphere in these countries that have recently completed their flu season. The coronavirus continues to defy expectations around the globe. We saw that South America, a continent with congested cities and high levels of poverty, had had a disproportionate number of COVID-19 cases compared to the world. With 8% of the population, it had one-third of the world's deaths. And yet, over the past month, in almost every South American country, the death toll has dropped dramatically, on average by 40%. In fact, the only nation in all of South America to see an increase in cases and an increase in deaths was Argentina. But what's uncertain is exactly why. Maybe this represents the added wearing of masks and the governmental efforts to encourage social distancing beyond what was done in the past and what is currently happening in the United States. Or maybe it comes from improvements in clinical care for people needing hospitalization. Or it could be a reflection of something that epidemiologists are calling local pockets of herd immunity, in which the entire population of the country doesn't have to have the requisite levels, but smaller units like families and neighborhoods are impacted. There's still so much we don't know about protecting people from this particular coronavirus. And of course, at the same time, there's so much we do know that we simply ignore. Robbie, with the president now infected with the coronavirus, I think that was a really big reality check for a lot of the people who maybe have not known anyone that was infected or had a difficult time with the virus. What do we currently know about the mortality rate from COVID-19? We talked about this in our last episode and why the numbers that are being currently reported based upon positive testing are overstating the risks. New data for Indiana University, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, support a lower percentage, a lower risk overall than many people have described. In this study, the researchers looked at people not living in institutions like nursing homes or prisons, and they quantified their death rates by age, race, ethnicity, and sex. What they found, not surprisingly, was that age 
More than race or sex determines the mortality from COVID-19, although similar to other studies, they did find that the fatality rate for non-white people was three times that of white individuals. They found that this coronavirus has a mortality rate around two and a half times the flu, which would make it significantly less than 0.5%, dramatically lower than the 2 to 4% often cited. Of interest, Jeremy, half of the deaths in Indiana from COVID-19 derived from nursing home residents. In contrast, the mortality rate for people between 12 and 40 was 0.01% or 1 in 10,000. This data asymmetry between the nursing home population risk and everyone else, I predict will be a huge factor when we look back on this pandemic years from now and try to understand its biology and its societal implications. Another piece of data on mortality came from New York City. Their epidemiologist found that 250,000 more people died this year than in a normal one. As is so true for so much about this virus, we have a lot of facts but we don't always understand what they mean. Were these added deaths from COVID-19 people who failed to come for care when they had treatable heart attacks, strokes, and infections? I keep hearing stories from doctors about patients who decided not to come to the ED with chest pain or weakness on one side of their body for fear about catching COVID-19 and as a consequence died from a heart attack or a stroke. But of course it's possible that these added deaths were simply from the infection itself and underreported. We don't know. What I would advise listeners is to consult medical expertise when they have potentially lethal symptoms. They can do this in person if they think it is a severe emergency, but at least reach a medical professional through telemedicine. What's happening economically in the country right now? The economics of this pandemic prove almost as unclear as the virus itself. The jobs report that came out on Friday showed that our nation had one of the largest increases in hiring in history. But it also showed there were still 11 million jobs, at least, behind where we were in the recent past. And the 857,000 jobs that were added last month were fewer than the 1.4 million in August and the 1.7 million in July. The implication is that it will be a long time, if ever, that we return to the past levels of employment. And this will have a massive impact on the economics of the United States for years into the future. Moreover, headlines this week 
talked about, described companies announcing major cutbacks in the airline industry, Disneyland, major fashion houses. And these workers are not yet in the data. Finally, small businesses reported a 21% decline in revenue, even now compared to January. But similar to almost everything about the pandemic, there seems to be a contrasting side for each statistic. Specifically, Americans are now starting new businesses at the fastest rate in over a decade, with the U.S. Census Bureau reporting that applications for employer identification numbers that are required to start a business are half a million more now than they were at this point in 2019. Whether this data on the rapid increase in new businesses indicate simply a speeding up of the business transition that had begun in the past, or whether this represents an entirely new normal that will continue in the post-coronavirus era, that too remains unclear. We'll continue to follow this through coronavirus, the truth. Robbie, so much of the future revolves around effective and safe vaccine development. Where do we stand today? Jeremy, at present, four vaccines are in or beginning phase three testing. There's Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. It uses a different virus, what's called an adenovirus. It's a common cold-type virus to deliver a gene from the coronavirus, which leads the human body to then create antibodies against the protein that the RNA that has been put into this adenovirus encodes for. The U.S. government has pre-purchased 100 million doses of this vaccine, and it has the option to buy 200 million more. The second vaccine is the one by Moderna that we've discussed in previous episodes. This vaccine relies on the actual messenger RNA from the virus that then is activated in the recipient's body producing the protein and leading to immune response. The protein that's produced is part of the spikes protruding from the coronavirus. And theoretically, if we have an antibody against those spikes, we would prevent the virus from penetrating our cells and causing us to become sick. But as we've said in previous episodes, a messenger RNA vaccine has not yet ever been proven to be successful. Once again, the government is committed to buying 100 million doses and has an agreement that it can purchase 400 million more. The third vaccine is manufactured by Pfizer, and it's also an mRNA or a messenger RNA vaccine. Unlike the Moderna version, this one requires that the vaccine be kept very cold 
at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. But the company is working to reduce that requirement by tinkering with the vaccine itself with a goal to have the vaccine by mid-2022 only require a negative 8 degrees Fahrenheit for safe storage. Similar to the other two vaccines, the government has an agreement to buy 100 million doses of this one should it prove successful, with an option for 500 million more. Finally, there's the British company AstraZeneca that's similar to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It too uses an adenovirus, although a different one, that allows the RNA from the coronavirus to be placed inside the recipient's body. This British company is the one we discussed a few episodes ago that had to suspend testing due to what was reported to be an inflammation of the spinal cord, a major complication that could have significant neurologic consequences. Testing of the vaccine has resumed in Britain, but not the United States. Here too, the United States has an agreement to purchase 300 million doses, assuming successful completion of phase three testing. As we've said on this show, all the vaccine development is promising, but far from certain. And all these vaccines could be shown to work, but still leave recipients at risk for the disease, similar to what happens with the current flu vaccines. A vaccine is our best opportunity, our best hope to eliminate the current COVID-19 pandemic, but we have a lot more distance to cover before we reach a successful conclusion. Robbie, a lot of people remain skeptical of the safety of the vaccine. Uh, what more is the government doing to reassure them? As a healthcare expert, how confident are you personally about the safety of the vaccine? And what could be done to make you personally more confident? Jeremy, in response to the huge skepticism about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, the FDA is planning to tighten requirements relative to both ensuring safety and proving effectiveness, according to the Washington Post. In particular, the agency will increase the requirements for emergency authorization of the vaccine, which will make it essentially impossible to have a vaccine available prior to the upcoming election. This new process would be far more rigorous than the emergency authorization through which hydroxychloroquine and convalescent serum were approved. It's expected that the agency will require manufacturers to monitor phase three clinical trial participants for at least two months after they receive what is planned to be a second vaccine shot. I predict that Americans will be looking to see if doctors and nurses step forward to be vaccinated 
before they as patients decide to roll up their sleeves. I mean, after all, people at tremendous risk are healthcare professionals who are encountering patients with coronavirus on a frequent basis. And based on the survey that I published in my monthly musings last month, right now, healthcare professionals seem moderately skeptical. I personally would wait to see how people do, given time, not on day one, but several months later, do they report significant side effects? Have we identified any major complications? And is the vaccine looking to be effective at helping people avoid becoming infected? Until that time, I'll continue to be wearing a mask and practicing social distancing. On Saturday, the president released a video from the hospital he is at saying that he is starting to feel better and that some of the new treatments being tested are essentially a miracle from God. What's new on the treatment side, and do you agree with his optimism? Doctors have figured out ways to better support patients who develop severe lung problems from this coronavirus, particularly implementing alternatives to intubation of individuals and the use of ventilators. Despite the media focus on various drugs and treatments, these adjuncts, from my perspective, have not proven overall to make a major difference in the course of the disease or its ultimate mortality. The one exception has been dexamethasone. It's an inexpensive steroid that has been used safely for decades for a variety of medical problems. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, the president is currently receiving it. An article published in the Journal of the AMA, an analysis of seven clinical trials that use this medication has been shown to produce a reduction in deaths by one third in the critically ill segment of those hospitalized with COVID-19. So far, this is the one medication that offers major success in treatment. Everything else to date has been a lot more hype than clinical effectiveness. The steroid, however, is complex. It's another example of the difficulty we have in truly understanding this virus and the human response to it. Remember, steroids work. These are the anti-inflammatory steroids, not the ones that some people take athletes for muscular development. But these anti-inflammatory steroids work by dampening the body's immune response. In some ways, that's contradictory. People become sick who don't have a good response. 
But what we also see is that some people become increasingly ill from an overreaction to the infection by their body. And these are the ones who benefit the most from the administration of the dexamethasone. The challenge for doctors is they have to find the Goldilocks solution. The treatment has to be neither too hot nor too cold. It can't just be somewhere in the middle, but it has to discern those individuals whose greatest risk is from an overreaction of their immune system versus those whose greatest threat is an inadequate immune system. And figuring that out is a difficult and dangerous tightrope to walk. I read this week about a new strain of the virus. What are the medical implications of this? Jeremy, you're correct. A genetic study on the RNA of the virus has demonstrated that there has been a very significant change. Consistent with what we have said on this show, this particular genetic mutation has not produced a more lethal strain. It doesn't make people sicker. What it alters is the transmissibility of the virus. This is what we would predict. Mutations that lead to greater lethality are not ones likely to get passed on because those with the virus die. Overall, genetic changes that make the infection rates higher but leave the mortality the same or lower are the ones that get passed on from person to person. And that's what we're seeing with this current new virus. Its implications are massive. We are likely to see more cases with a lower overall mortality, and it will increase the race between the disease being spread across a broad population and the time needed to the development of a vaccine to slow that down. Jeremy, on coronavirus, the truth, we assiduously avoid partisan politics. But as a patient, what do you wish the two presidential candidates had told the nation in last week's debate about COVID-19 in general and healthcare more specifically? Robbie, to be honest, I watched the debate and I was extremely disappointed. I believe it was the lowest point of the upcoming election so far. Uh, Wallace lost all control of the debate, and I don't think anyone got much out of it. Uh, the one undecided voter I know actually texted me towards the end of the debate and told me that the only thing it had convinced them was to stay home and not vote. I wish they both had the opportunity to lay out their plans in detail for battling the virus, uh, helping businesses that were hurt, and a plan to reopen the economy. I do not feel like either candidate had the opportunity to lay out their strategy in a detailed manner and compare and contrast it to their opponent. 
And I actually think there needs to be more of a long form debate where the candidates have a long time to answer questions without focusing on, you know, a good 30 second soundbite for the highlight reel after the debate. I think people, myself included, expect too much out of debates given the limitations and time constraints of the format. Along those lines, how much of a difference do you believe the specifics of their answers would make for you and your friends in terms of how all of you will vote? To be honest, I think the vast majority of voters have made up their mind and At this point, little can be done to sway them either way unless there's some major October surprises, they're called, and makes one candidate lose a lot of support. And and I don't see something major enough happening to sway voters too much. I do think that if one of the candidates had a strong COVID-19 plan that was made easy to understand, that would be something huge, something with a roadmap with timelines and specific criteria being reached for each uh, certain milestone. We need a plan that focuses on protecting those most at risk while not letting small businesses that are the staples of the community uh, be destroyed. For example, according to a September survey from the New York State Restaurant Association, as many as two-thirds of the state's restaurants could close permanently by the end of the year if they do not receive additional government aid. These are more than just businesses. These are people's livelihoods, their blood, sweat, and tears. We need a plan that looks at mental health of the community, addresses the increases in alcoholism, financial loss, and suicide. We need a comprehensive plan that is laid out and takes all of this into perspective. And I don't feel like either candidate has done a great job in building confidence in their respective plans. The candidates need to know that the virus and its impact on the economy due to the restrictions is probably the largest issue this time around. They both need to be hammering home to the public what their plan is, how does it work, what is the timeline, what is the roadmap. And I don't think the general public really has any idea about what either candidate's plan is, other than the basic rhetoric of Biden's camp saying Trump is anti-science and Trump's camp saying Biden would let the economy be destroyed. Robbie, a listener wrote in and said that the Supreme Court would be reviewing the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act in the near future. She wanted to know what the impact would be relative to the coronavirus if it were eliminated. Jeremy, our listeners are highly educated on healthcare subjects, and this question is a great one. Two years ago, the courts ruled that the mandate that every person in the United States have healthcare coverage was illegal. The newest suit claims that if one provision of a bill is ruled illegal, the entire legislation should be thrown out. There's precedent that this argument isn't one that the Supreme Court has traditionally pursued based on the belief why throw away the good with the bad. Having said that, as justices change, so do legal perspectives. We can't say at this point what would happen if the ACA were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in the near future, but let's assume insurance companies return to what existed before it was enacted and the Medicaid expansion was reversed. The process would lead people with pre-existing conditions to be excluded from coverage and the working poor to lose coverage as well. And both groups are the individuals at greatest risk from getting sick 
needing hospitalization, and requiring critical care from COVID-19. As such, were the ACA not in place, I believe this pandemic would have had even more dire consequences than today. The Affordable Care Act legislation has problems, but the greatest threat to a person's health is not having health care coverage at all. Eliminating the ACA, I believe, would harm millions of Americans. It should not be eliminated until there is an equal or even better solution. And right now, that simply does not exist. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit our contact page on the website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.